Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. I'm Kai Wright, host of WNYC's podcast, The United States of Anxiety. This season, we're focusing on gender and power, themes that are upending the 2018 elections. On the Politics Brief podcast from WNYC, you get the best of our political coverage with segments from my show, as well as from The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, and On the Media, plus local reporting on New York and New Jersey races from our award-winning newsroom. Welcome to Politics Brief from WNYC. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, and now another issue in our 30 Issues in 30 Days Fall Election Series. And if you've listened to the whole show today, you know we're doing two on this program. That's to make up for being preempted the last two Fridays for the Kavanaugh hearings. Right now, it's issue 13. The Trump administration reverses course from the Obama administration on considering race as a factor in forming diverse student bodies. And the Trump Justice Department goes in on a lawsuit against Harvard, which claims discrimination against Asian American applicants in particular. It's a 30 issues debate. Is the Trump administration right or wrong on what it calls race blind admissions? Our two guests for this are Juan Williams, news, uh, Fox News host and commentator. He was just here recently for his new book, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Trump's War on Civil Rights. And Roger Clegg, president and general counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity, which focuses on legal issues stemming from civil rights laws. He was a deputy assistant attorney general in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations, including in the Civil Rights Division. Juan Williams, welcome back. Roger Clegg, welcome to WNYC. Good to be with you, Brian. Let's start with the Harvard case in particular. The trial is set to begin Monday. Roger Clegg, do you want to explain or argue the basic case for the plaintiffs for our audience? Sure. The, uh, the plaintiffs are a group of Asian-American students who are challenging the admissions policies at Harvard for discriminating against them. And in one respect, they're is surprisingly, um, uh, it's, it's surprising that Harvard denies that it considers race in admissions. Uh, I, I think that uh, it, the whole point is that when you have a, an admissions policy that is holistic, as, as Harvard calls it, you are considering race. And if you're considering race, then that means that sometimes it's going to help you and sometimes it's going to hurt you. Otherwise, you know, why, why consider it? The problem, uh, in particular, is that the deck really seems to be stacked against Asian-American students. Um, if non-academic factors were, uh, or were excluded and only academic factors were considered, uh, Asian-Americans would be more than 40 percent of, of those admitted to Harvard. Uh, it's only by considering uh, race uh, and other non-academic factors that Harvard has been able to keep the percentage of Asian Americans down close to uh, 20%. And in fact, this has led a lot of people to point out that this is very similar to the anti-Jewish quotas that Harvard had in the, uh, in the battle days. So, so is the case that the, the plaintiffs are making and that you're making 
that Harvard should base admissions solely on academics and no other factors? No, but we are saying that it should not consider race. Um, you know, if, if Harvard wants to consider, um, you know, extracurricular activities and teacher recommendations and things like that, well, you know, we have no, no objection to that. And, of course, there's no legal uh, impediment to considering non-academic factors except for race. Uh, and... Uh, of course, uh, there's also a problem if you are using these non other non-academic factors as a as a, a pretext for for keeping the number of Asian Americans down. I mean, for example, if you uh, give heavy weight to geography uh, or to uh, legacy status simply because you want to keep out certain groups and favor others, uh, that would be a problem. Juan Williams, do you want to explain or make the basic case for the defendant, which is Harvard? Well, I think uh, Harvard can do that better than I can, but I can tell you their argument, which is that they look at what they call, you know, the whole person, Brian, and they're trying to take into consideration some of the things that Roger just referenced. For example, not only just pure SAT or ACT scores, but also recommendations, also experience uh, in the world. You know, are you involved in volunteer efforts and the like? Are you a good writer? Everything gets considered according to Harvard, and race is part of that picture. They say that they are. They don't want to be confused. They don't want anyone to say they're trying to balance their class. But in fact. What you see is they've been making a real effort, it could be called affirmative effort or affirmative action, uh, to diversify their school, and they make the argument that diversity has value to the school and their private institution. Uh, I think what we've seen over the years, and in this case in specific with the Asian students, is a, is a backlash. I think people now are using the Asian students you know, expediently as puppets, if you will, as a wedge uh, to go at the fact that they don't like the idea of black students uh, being given special consideration when it comes to admission to colleges and universities, particularly the elite private schools. But a school like Harvard right now, you know, with uh, you know black people about 15% of the population, they're only uh, at Harvard, uh, and and about Latinos, you know, uh, about you know 22% or something like that, but. Um, and Asian Americans are 20%, so they're the largest group, but half of the school is white. And I think that for lots of people, they say, well, wait a second, uh, if we just went with pure merit, you would get more Asian students. But in fact, uh, what Harvard and other schools say is we are considering merit in more ways than one. And of course, historically, when you think about things like legacies, did your parents go there? Did your grandparents go there? Are you an athlete? Are you a musician? Uh, and, of course, we live in a time of widening income, uh, income gaps, uh, income inequality. Uh, they also have to look at, are they tr still providing a ladder of upward mobility for young people, especially young minority people, who come from schools uh, in segregated residential areas uh, that do not perform as well as schools outside of that? So over the last 40 years, in a variety of cases, the Supreme Court has affirmed the principle that race is a legitimate factor given the, you know, American society and our history 
of depriving people of opportunity, specifically educational opportunity, based on skin color. Listeners, we welcome you into the debate with comments or questions. Asian Americans, African Americans, or anyone else with a thought or a question, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. So, Roger Clegg, to the point that Juan was just making there, um, black people were uniquely singled out for discrimination in our Constitution and state laws, for hundreds of years, there's still segregation informally in schools, disparities in wealth and income and so much remain severe as a result of this history. Why wouldn't it just be common sense to affirmatively include African-Americans in education and the economy at large in order not to perpetuate structural racism rather than what you say, which is that you can take all kinds of extra academic considerations into account, everything except race? Well, I think that racial discrimination is uh, uniquely ugly. And I think that that's the, the premise of you know, the question that you asked. Uh, racial discrimination is true, has a long, sad history in this country. Uh, we should stop it. Uh, and uh, going forward, we should not give anybody uh, a preference or, uh, or, or a hindrance uh, on the basis of race. You know, yes, it's true that African Americans were discriminated against, um, but, you know, so were Native Americans, so were Latinos, and so were Asian Americans. You know, now, you know, Harvard is giving a preference to Latinos over Asian Americans. There's no way that you can justify that as having some kind of, you know, historical uh, basis. Um, and, you know, one... I has written uh, in other contexts, uh, you know, his book Enough, that the persistence of racial disparities, you know, in my view, uh, can't be laid to, to past discrimination. It's, it's, it's uh, because of, you know, in particular, the implosion of the, uh, the black family and other, other cultural problems. And I would also, you know, make the point that the Supreme Court has not said that it is okay to give preferences to a group because of past discrimination. They've relied on this uh, bogus diversity justification. And if you were going to give a preference to people on the basis of disadvantaged status, I would have no objection to that. But there are plenty of Asian kids and white kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And the overwhelming majority, like 86 percent, of African Americans who get admitted into the into the Ivies uh, don't come from disadvantaged backgrounds. They come from middle class or upper class backgrounds. So Juan, so, let me let, let me go to Juan and get a response. And Juan, in a way, now we're really getting to it because Roger was very candid in speaking for many white Americans who think that whatever uh, disparities exist today are not the result of historic structural racism, but uh, lack of um, uh, family structure or other personal characteristics on the, pay, uh, on the part of blacks. Well, if you're looking at the growth of the black middle class in this country, you'd have to say it's not the case that slavery is what's the primary problem here, uh, because what you do see uh, disproportionately in terms of the elite schools in the country, but even in terms of state schools, is that young people who come from two-parent families who have the kind of support, someone to take them to the library, someone to walk with them, people who are able to 
go on vacations, have those kinds of experiences, guess what? They do better in school. I don't think this is any shock to anybody. But there's 20% of the black population that still lives in poverty, and we know there's a high degree of what is called hypersegregation in terms of public education in this country, uh, so that you get especially poor minority kids, and here I'm talking not Asian, but I'm talking black and Latino, concentrated in poor-performing schools. This is social dynamite uh, for us as a country. So the idea that we would pay attention to it uh, seems to me really rational and important. Um, so that's but, not Juan, to you're deny... not giving a preference to those kids. <laughs> you know, the preference is I, going I, to kids not who are in poverty, but okay. who are in the middle class or the upper middle class. Right. I think the larger Juan. point, Roger, is that you take a case like the one we saw, uh, you know, Abigail Fisher, University of Texas. University of Texas said we will allow the top 10% of students at any school. So that meant that you could come from a poorly performing school, but still, you know, if you're in the top 10%, you know, used to the saying, you know, flower where you're planted. If you flower there, you would get into the University of Texas. You would be a high-performing student in a poor, segregated school. But Abigail Fisher sued the University of Texas and said this is unfair because I might be going to a good school in a good neighborhood and I am not quite in the top 10% because it's a more competitive school, so why am I not getting into University of Texas? Well, guess what? The Supreme Court ruled against her in 2016 and said basically that, of course, the University of Texas has a right to have this kind of uh, race-neutral, actually, policy in place. So what you see is that, you know, you want to point out, like, you know, somebody who comes from a good family, why do they get some preference? Well, I think if you are performing in place, no matter where you are, the whole person and the person's family history, just as we considered legacies previously in admitting people whose uh, parents or grandparents have gone to the school, are a legitimate concern. I think that is... Totally legitimate well, why, and again why I important to, to the society. You've misstated the Fisher case. Uh, Abigail Fisher did not challenge the 10 percent plan at all. What she challenged was the use of racial preferences on top of the 10 percent plan. But she had no problem with the 10 percent plan. To the contrary, she said that because of the 10 percent plan, uh, the University of Texas had plenty of racial diversity and that this additional discrimination was unjustified. So no, I think it was the 10th. Well, I mean, right, the so listeners can disagree. go to the record, but right. I think what we're seeing here and what we see now from the Trump administration is an effort to even put pressure on colleges and universities to say, if you consider race, you will be subjected to investigations and possibly right. to lawsuits. And I mean, they're trying to, I think, play to their political base. And, and, and hang on, this is... Uh, we have to take a break, and then when we come back, we will broaden it to exactly that. We'll broaden it out from this Harvard lawsuit in particular, uh, which, if the timeline I've read is accurate, is actually going to go into the courtroom on Monday, and broaden it to how the, Ob the, uh, the Trump administration has flipped the federal government position on this in general from what it was in the Obama administration as we continue with our 30 issues in 30 days debate, the Trump administration reverses course from Obama on considering race as a factor in forming diverse student bodies. Stay with us. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be right back after a break. Music helps us celebrate, contemplate, cope, and connect. 
and we've got the stories to prove it. Join me, Terrence McKnight, for the new season of The Open Ears Project, a podcast in which people tell us about the piece of classical music that has meant the most to them. That music might even wind up being meaningful for you. The Open Ears Project. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. WNYC, as we continue with our 30 Issues in 30 Days debate on the Trump administration reversing course from the Obama administration on considering race as a factor in forming diverse student bodies on college campuses, and the Trump Justice Department going in in particular on the lawsuit against Harvard claiming discrimination against Asian American applicants. Our guests are Roger Clegg, President and General Counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity, He used to be an assistant attorney general in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. And Juan Williams, Fox News host and commentator, who uh, returns after his recent book appearance here for his new book, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Trump's War on Civil Rights. And the two of you were just starting to move from the Harvard case to the larger question of Trump policy. Uh, Juan, I'll, I'll go to you first. Beyond the one lawsuit, They are flipping in general from the Obama administration policy, which encouraged the use of race as one factor in building diverse student bodies. Does it matter in a practical sense what the federal justice department thinks about this, or is it just Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions expressing their opinions? Well, I think that it is there an expression of opinion that I think plays to their political base in the Republican Party, I think it plays to the whole notion of white grievance that somehow white kids, deserving white kids, are not being admitted to these schools that uh, admission slots are being taken away uh, and given to, you know, unworthy applicants who really aren't prepared to go to these schools. Um, and I, I, I think that the politics of it is pretty apparent. You mean, you have the uh, Trump Justice, De- uh, Trump Education Department cutting funding generally, but even doing away with programs like opening doors, expanding opportunities, which is, which is intended to increase economic diversity in elementary and secondary schools in the country. Another Obama era plan. I think it was like $12 million budget, but they want to cut it. They want to cut efforts to push minorities into STEM, you know, science, technology. Uh, mathematics programs, again, in elementary and secondary schools. Um, And again, and then they come to this idea that they're going to advise colleges to do not look at race or risk feeling the hand, the heavy hand of the federal government. To me, what you see here is an administration that plays to white grievance rather than the needs of our of an increasingly diverse, racially diverse, economically diverse country uh, to make sure that, guess what, America's a land where everybody has a chance to succeed. Roger? Well, I think it's uh, not fair to characterize the Trump administration's policies in this area and policy shift as being somehow uh, motivated by a, uh, a, a desire to play the white base. I mean, after all, it's the Trump administration that is opposing racial discrimination. It's the Trump administration that is opposing the use of race and ethnicity in government decision-making. It's true that uh, racial preferences are unpopular. They are overwhelmingly unpopular. Seventy-two percent of Americans don't like them. But that includes the majority of all 
racial and ethnic groups. Uh, and, you know, if we're going to go forward in this country, uh, if we're going to move away from the kind of racial pandering and, and, and so forth that goes on uh, with the extremes on, on both sides of the political spectrum, the way to do it is to take race and ethnicity out of the equation, you know, either way and to get back to the notion of e pluribus unum. You know, we're all Americans. Nobody should be getting treated better or worse because of skin color or ethnicity. Let, well, look, let, me, let, let me jump in for one second, because yeah. you, you're making that argument, and that's your argument. But on the facts, um, wouldn't it just be a fact to say what Juan said, that the Trump administration is reflecting and playing to... Uh, the white sense of grievance that a lot of people who are white have about affirmative action policies? No, I, I don't think so, because, look, uh, lots of people, um, you know, not just aggrieved, you know, uh, white supremacists, think that racial preferences are a bad idea. This has been true for a long time. You know, in the civil rights era in the 1960s, lots of liberals uh, thought that this was a, a bad road to go down. And there are still lots of liberals who think that uh, racial preferences are, are, are a bad Let idea. Let me get a couple Joe of... Lieberman and so forth. I mean, mm-hmm. is, so I don't think it's fair, Brian, to, to, to say that, okay, well, since there are some um, uh, you know, people on the on the right and you know, the extreme right who who don't like racial preferences. Well, I didn't say that. I said Trump a widespread white grievance. But it's not just whites. I mean, you know, remember the Harvard lawsuit is about discrimination against Asian Americans. Okay, and in government contracting, frequently it's Latinos, you know, who are discriminated against. I mean, we, we ought to just be getting away from uh, picking winners and losers on the basis of race. Let me get here. a caller well, or two in here. Kunal in Queens. You're on WNYC. Hello, Kunal. Yes, hi, sir. Uh, yes, I'm an avid listener. I listen to you guys. But first time, I'm actually disagreeing with you, sir. I feel like being a brown, you know, I'm Indian, and, you know, I've come from a family of immigrants. And when we first came to the country, we all slept in one bedroom on the floor. We didn't have any food. We, we literally just came from scratch. And, you know, our family became, you know, nurses and, you know, doctors. And, and I feel like in that sense, you know, we, we came up because our parents mm-hmm. told us you know, we have to work hard if you want to succeed. So I feel like, why should someone get mm-hmm. an extra boost when we didn't? And Kunal, we can- thank you. I'm going to leave it there for time. But Juan, this goes to something you said earlier, uh, that you felt that the Asian Americans in this lawsuit against Harvard were being used as pawns um, more by, by people with white grievance. There's Kunal as an example, and the plaintiffs themselves would be an example of people who or Asian-American, who certainly don't feel they're doing this except for reasons of their own choosing, right? Correct. And so I would, I would affirm and agree, by the way, with Roger Clegg on this point, that nobody is backing quotas. They're unpopular not only in terms of the courts, but in terms of the American population. Racial quotas, preferences based solely on race, it, nobody wants this. Uh, you know, you don't want unqualified people in positions, and then that would lead to white people saying, oh, that guy or that gal got that job only because of affirmative action, or they got into Harvard only because of affirmative action. Nobody wants that. What you want is a fair consideration of the of what Harvard calls the whole person, and that means you look at their circumstance, what they've done in their life, what they've done in school, as well as considering, and schools do this all the time, where they come from, the geography, everything. So this is, you know, when you talk about the immigrant experience or the Asian experience, I think everybody wants to have a ladder of upward mobility 
opportunity, educational opportunity in the U.S., but denying that we have a problem with a specific population and that the school would make an effort that would benefit whites, blacks, Latinos, Asians, immigrants by demonstrating a diverse school population where people can have experiences with each other, that that has no value, I think that's ridiculous. We live in a diverse society, and in order to succeed, you want your children to grow and learn from each other. So, Roger Clegg, I'll give you the last word as we run out of time. On precisely that point, how would you respond to one's argument that if Harvard or any other place wants to build a diverse student body, including racially diverse, for the sake of all the students, because they feel that's the most beneficial environment for everybody, why should the federal government come in and tell them that diversity is unconstitutional? Well, because the racial discrimination is unconstitutional, uh, and because that's, that's in the Constitution, it's also in the civil rights statutes. And the very limited kind of tiebreaker use of race that Juan is talking about, that doesn't happen. Uh, when race is considered, it's given overwhelming weight, uh, and you do have quotas, and you do have, uh, you know, unfair discrimination. And, you know, what you have to ask, Brian, at the end of the day is, okay, you know, maybe you think there is some value to, uh, you know, to, the, to this diversity, but you have to weigh it against all the costs. And, and you have to weigh it against the, the personal discrimination that occurs, that you're passing over better qualified students, the precedent that you're setting, the resentment, the stigmatization, and the mismatching of African-Americans, on and on and on. There's, there's so many costs Ro- and, and so little benefit. Roger Clegg from the Center for Equal Opportunity. Juan Williams from Fox News and author of What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Trump's War on Civil Rights. Thank you both very much for engaging. Thank you. Thank you, you, Roger. Thank you, Brian. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.